Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I, with a crackly voice, am Jim Grant, and with me is uh, the great Deputy Editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz, and um, Henry French, our sound engineer, and the fellow who's clicking, for reasons that I can't fathom at the other end of the phone, is Doug Lucas, Douglas J. Lucas, a storied credit analyst and uh, credit thinker from Wall Street who has produced something called Stories.Finance, and that is our topic for today, and you will be transfixed as I have been reading them. So, but Evan, before we get into uh, the stories about finance, I want to ask you about something quite extraordinary that both of us uh, dealt with in the issue of grants that we closed last night, which is something called Fed notes, which I didn't know. I didn't know it was a thing, but there's something called, I thought like Federal Reserve notes. I know about them. <laughs> nobody has enough of them, right? Uh, nobody has enough of them. Right. But there's something called Fed's notes. I guess that's to differentiate Fed's notes from Fed Reserve note, right? Okay. Never mind that. But there's something called Fed Notes that is a bulletin from the Board of Governors of the Fed. And this particular issue of Fed Notes talked about how they're about to step in it, <laughs> particularly uh, this sentence. Um, so they are considering these Fed people the consequences of the uh, brisk rise in the federal funds rate since March of 2022. Evan, do you realize they waited until March to raise their stupid interest rate? I think inflation was only like... Eight-ish percent yeah, around that time. Right. Anyway, that's what they did. And so it's up 500 basis points or so since. And now the Fed analysts are taking the measure of this and of the likely consequences of the hike. Wait, you're saying they didn't do it before they started hiking? They're busy people. <laughs> All right. Uh, so they asked themselves, uh, uh, do, what, what what might be the results, these effects on investment and employment, given the high share of firms currently in distress so the Fed seems to know that uh, there are a lot of firms uh, in distress already, and they reply to their question as the following sentence, quote, with a share of distressed firms currently standing at about 37%, 37%, our estimates suggest that the recent uh, policy tightening is likely to have effects on investment, employment, and aggregate activity that are stronger than in most tightening cycles since the late 1970s. The effects in our analysis, peak around one or two years after the shock, suggesting that these effects might be most noticeable in 2023, 2024. So you're saying we still might have some time. Yeah. But 2023 is it's like current events, right? <laughs> Last I checked, yeah. Anyway, I, th I thought it was it was quite striking that the Fed is acknowledging that the, um, but mostly I think that the 37% the, the of our, uh, of the, uh, Firms they survey are distressed. I, I guess by distress they mean not covering interest expense by uh, by EBIT maybe or something. That's that's the zombie dessert. I believe the definition in there was that um, have a thin coverage of uh, interest rate. It was some some definition about this a certain percentile being close to default, and they have a de definition of yeah. default. Yeah, it's basically a, re a fixed charge coverage. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we have on the other end of the grants interest rate observer telephone. We have Doug Lucas who knows all about fixed charge coverages and such. Uh, Doug is, um, as I say, an, an authority, uh, eminent authority on uh, on credit. He has uh, uh, worked at a variety of Wall Street institutions from J.P. Morgan, uh, UBS, where he was the head of a CDO re research. Evan, you remember what a, what a CDO was? Uh, something that blows up in your hands when you... Correct. Uh... Independent consultant. And he is a patron of the arts uh, who is uh, favorite works of art philanthropy is Balanchine Patrons. So, you know, Paul Isaac, our dear friend, Paul Isaac, had, had, his, his, uh, his mother was a dancer and, uh, and she was uh, active in something called the Dance Notation Bureau. Uh, in the day, there was a way of um, 
taking down choreography through uh, kind of a calligraphy, I guess not unlike uh, musical notation, so they thought. And uh, she prevailed upon her husband, Mr. Isaac, to give liberally, and he called it the Dance Donation Bureau. <laughs> anyway, Doug, Douglas J. Lucas, welcome. Well, you're very kind, but you, you have set expectations higher than I can meet. Well, you so, might, um, in that case, I, I suggest you try so I'll just a, a little I'll bit I'll give harder. it a try. Okay. I'll give it a try. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, Doug, tell us about this avocation of yours. I've mentioned uh, the, the most cursory way some of the things you've done professionally, but this is something a little bit new. It's stories.finance on the web, and you can log on to stories.finance and read first-person accounts of the most significant consequential events in recent Wall Street history. Everyone knows about oral history. It's, you know, you can go to Columbia University and they got these transcriptions. But these are lively pieces written in the kind of, some of them in the style of Raymond Chandler. I mean, the, the, the uh, prose is uh, exceptionally ex <laughs> accessible. And the stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They are colorful, and they tell you what has been going on in Wall Street for 25 or 30 or 40 years. I mean, it's really quite a great resource for anyone who wants to know about financial markets. So tell us why you decided to do this, what it is, and where it's taking us. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I, I should have mentioned at the top, and uh, I'm honored to be uh, in some way associated with such a prestigious journal as yours. Um, well, the fact is uh, I was retired and uh, my wife was looking around for something for me to do and uh, to keep her out of her hair. And uh, I came up with this. And it's good because I get to talk to people who I met in my career, maybe in the dim past. And I also get to meet some new people and hear their stories and uh, work with them on, on bringing their stories to life. Okay, Doug, I want to uh, start diving into the contents of these, these wonderful mini essays, the first person accounts of events on Wall Street. And I want to introduce them by, again, introducing you. You are the author of, to me, the singular defining quotation concerning the events of 2007, 8, and 9. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Doug Lucas. Then you were, I think, still at UBS. All right. Here is the quotation. Quote, this is apropos of the, uh, the, uh, the carnage of 2007 through 2009. Quote, said Doug Lucas, the greatest ratings and credit risk management failure ever. And we use that uh, in grants. And I'm going to read some marvelous stories, um, Doug. This is Joe Pimbley's uh, account of why Lehman Brothers failed when it did. And here is something that Joe says in the introduction to this discussion of what actually toppled Lehman. He says that, uh, you know, while highly levered, et cetera, et cetera, Lehman was not the only security firm to fail. Quote, all major U.S. firms failed to one degree or another. Besides Lehman's outright bankruptcy, Bear Stearns and Merrill Lynch were merged in commercial banks. I believe Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley would have defaulted on their short-term borrowings had the Fed not permitted them to convert to bank holding companies and gain access to discount window liquidity. Close quote. Now, you read this. I mean, I, it's, I, I was there. I, we wrote about this song. We anticipated some of it. But reading it again, it is such a shocking indictment of the system as it was then established. And what do you think? What does this mean? What does this terrible indictment imply for current goings on in credit? Is, was this isolated in a moment of time or is this part of the human nature? Is it part of a human system of fiat currencies and, and moral hazard? Well, Joe focuses on leverage 
and particularly the uh, short-term aspect of the leverage that uh, security firms use. And, and, and that's, 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 that's where he's coming from about that, you know, about debacle in the 2007-2008. You know, Solomon had the treasury auction scandal, and uh, I think they survived for a couple of reasons. One was Warren Buffett and, and his reputation. Uh, that, uh, you know, regulators believed that he was going to do the right thing. And the openness with which he approached the problem. And by that, I mean, you know, it was open kimono. He was everything that we found out. We're giving you everything. Uh, we are also waiving attorney-client privilege. But the other aspect of why Solomon survived was, um, you know, they had turned out their liabilities. And they uh, funded short term on a secured basis, and uh, they were able to rapidly delever the firm. And they survived that. I think Joe would say that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, that's that's an example that doesn't disprove his thesis. That uh, you know, it was all because of the, you know, the high leverage. I think I think he says something in there that. What percent of asset decline would cause insolvency? And it's a shockingly low number, like, I don't know, one, four percent. Four percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a hell of a good point. But, you know, the other cause was, you know, the subprime crisis. And now I'll repeat a quote that I heard from you um, at one of my conferences that I held that you that you came to speak at which was something along the lines of investment bankers take a good idea and they pound it into the ground like a tomato steak until it's no longer a good idea. And that's certainly, you know, what happened to um, uh, subprime mortgages. And then everything that happened downstream from subprime mortgages, subprime mortgage bonds, subprime mortgage-backed CDOs, the insurers that insured the top tranche of these structures like AMBAC and FGIC, and the security firms that had, uh, you know, warehouses full of unsecuritized mortgages and securities on their books when the music stopped. So I don't think Joe's wrong, but, you know, there were, I guess there was a match that lit the fire. You know, Joe explains how the bonfire is set up. Then there was a match. There's always a proximate cause, but the fact is, these uh, it's not like Hillary Clinton. The fact is, the fact is, uh, Wall Street went into the difficulties of 2007, et cetera, leveraged uh, 25, 30, 40 to one. We had a piece in uh, 2006, the headline over which was "Over the Cliff with Morgan Stanley." And it was about this is Morgan Stanley was the first of these firms with a trillion dollar balance sheet and uh, very little equity underneath all that. And uh, it was capitalized for nothing except 72 degrees Fahrenheit, as it were, sunshine <laughs> and wind speeds of two miles an hour. That's how Morgan Stanley went into the crisis. So there's a lack of yeah. institutionalized lack of circumspection. However, let's let's not over dwell on that unfortunate transitory episode of near cataclysmic extinction. But let us investigate. Before we get off that, since you like that quote, 
I'm working on another quote, you know, uh, besides the greatest uh, failure of risk management and ratings. How about ever? How about the ever? Yeah, yeah, ever. How about um, the third greatest maddening infliction of misery? not involving weapons of war. I don't know. I like the first one. Maybe I can uh, interject with another Hillary Clinton quote. Uh, it, it takes a village. So, <laughs> so, so the Fed, after, after the dot-com crash, dragged rates down to 1%, um, denied that there could be a subprime crisis. I remember Bernanke saying, um, real estate's always local, there's no subprime uh, contagion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were the regulator for the banks. We had the SEC re uh, relax uh, leverage ratios for for uh, broker dealers, which allowed you know banks like Lehman to actually have as much leverage as it did, and you also had the bankers themselves who took a great idea and not only killed it, but spread its entrails like all, all over the floor. Um, is there anything to be learned from this? Is there any way that we, as uh, as you know, members of the financial market, can learn from our past mistakes and not repeat them in the future, like we did perhaps with the Fed taking rates down to zero? Uh, printing so much money that it forced deposits on banks and certain banks who were poorly run blowing up pretty predictably uh, this spring. Is there anything we can learn from this? Is there um, any way we can not keep stepping on the same rigs? I, I don't know. I, gotta, I, I have to think that uh, you know, a lot of things that we've done are uh, counterproductive. Why did, why did we allow commercial banks and investment banks to get together? Uh, why did we do that? I, May I, seems like a good place to start. For the edification of our listeners, I would like to give you a sense of the, uh, the richness of the, uh, of the canon of stories.finance, which are available, by the way, on the World Wide Web for a click of a button or two. So there's one, um, this is by Joe Pimbley, again, PhD in theoretical physics, but uh, is kind of has slummed in, uh, in, uh, in financial work. A little, little like, um, uh, help me with... Uh, um, uh, wrote um, My Life as a Quant. Oh, uh, Derman? Uh, Emmanuel Derman, yeah. So uh, Joe Pimpley also and um, Emmanuel, both are theoretical physicists who came to Wall Street. But uh, here's a, here's a so uh, peasant logic and the Russian GKO trade is one of these delightful episodes, and it deals with the wisdom of what uh, is known in some circles or was known as, as peasant logic. And um, the story ha goes about how, uh, you know, uh, the, the that this outfit uh, brings in uh, deep thinkers and model builders to uh, model out the likelihood of a, a big uh, unrequited risk in a certain trade involving Russian short-term securities, and uh, that blows up, of course. And um, anyway, so what, what they omitted uh, was common sense, or as it was known at that institution, um, financial peasant logic, that's one. Another one is, uh, is meeting Michael Milken. And this is Doug Watson's account of a meeting with Michael Milken in 1988. Michael Milken being um, the junk bond king of Drexel Burnham back in the 1980s, uh, probably the most important figure on Wall Street for a cycle or two. And uh, so, the, so imagine, imagine um, a couple of uh, guys from uh, from Moody's Investor Service going out to Beverly Hills to sit with with. Um, the guy who figures he's actually invented credit, that's Michael Milken. And it's a very funny and amusing and, and, uh, and uh, eye-opening story. And uh, the two of them, uh, Doug Watson and I think Tom McGuire, both uh, high-ranking you know, Moody's people, sit down with Milken or sit in audience of M Milken and, 
and uh, they're surrounded by um, uh, staff members of Drexel. Uh, Milken is holding court and uh, occasionally turning and, uh, and firing off a, an order to one of his underlings without any reference to the people in the room except for uh, himself and his uh, staff. Anyway, so um, uh, at the end of this, this magnificent recitation of the social good that's coming from Michael Milken's junk bond world, um, Tom McGuire turns to his uh, Moody's confair, Doug Watson, and says, quote, we've just been to Jonestown. <laughs> anyway, that's a moment. It's a very actually a very important moment in Wall Street history. So there, there are, how, many, how many of these episodes have you, have you uh, produced? Uh, maybe uh, a dozen, all told? Uh, uh, 21 stories. 21. Uh, up on the website. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that was the first one. Um, you know... Uh, despite what Milton's press guy uh, said about the story, we gave it to you know to his people to take a look at before we published. I would say one thing about that story is it's the most positive, negative story ever written on anyone. I agree. If we go into yeah. all of his accomplishments, yes, and yes. Uh, talk about his uh, work ethic and his intelligence, we relate some of these interesting uh, things about him. He could multiply 12, two 12-digit numbers in his head. And, um, and we talk about his charities. And, uh, and, you know, and, and at the end, you know, at the end of this, after this weird display of personality cult that occurs at the office. Uh, oh, and by the way, this happened. This meeting was the year after Mike Milken had made over half a billion dollars. Uh, that that used to be a lot of money. Five hundred. Yeah. yeah. Well, back well back in 1987, that's a lot of money, right? And um, he, uh, you know, that comes around to, you know, the 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 thing that 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 Milken wanted to talk about the social good of junk bonds. Yeah. You know, Doug was there to find out. You know, what are the you know, about the risk of the companies that he was financing? Yeah, sure. you're giving them so much debt. What's the control on the amount of debt that you're willing to give them? What's the control on the amount of risk that Drexel is taking in facilitating that uh, that amount of debt? That uh, comes around to thinking that yeah, Milken's view of the capital markets uh, has actually prevailed. Right. Capital market solutions are, yeah. are better than bank solutions. The, the, the junk bond market survived. It was, uh, it was altogether a, a fair piece. So here's, here's what I mentioned earlier at the, at the start of our discussion, Doug, uh, Doug Lucas. I mentioned that uh, some of the stuff reads as if it were um, uh, from the, uh, the bookshelf of uh, famous mystery writers. It's cause the writing is, the, 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 the uh, dialogue is it's almost <laughs> cinematic. It's so catchy. And here's one. Is it one of these stories concerns um, an especially uh, high-strung and uh, ruthless, funny, ruthless salesman? And the headline of the of the piece is "What Makes Sammy Run?" A trading assistant races up Wall Street. Okay, so I'm going to read you a, a paragraph uh, that uh, will perhaps uh, reassure the readers that I wasn't exaggerating when I was talking about the accessibility and the and the good fun that you're going to have reading these things. Quote, I didn't hear from Sammy after that, says the raconteur, who is a money manager. Sammy is on the sell side and ever pursuing him for business. Through the grapevine, I gathered his career continued its meteoric rise. True to his word, he soon left the trading desk, moved into sales, then investment banking, mergers, acquisitions, the rewards for someone in murders 
and executions, yes, murders and executions, were unlimited, perfect for someone who believes going through life with a conscience is like driving a car with a handbrake on. Now, <laughs> that is a, that's a quote. And as I say, these, these pieces are illuminated by such things. And um, what they're doing up on the World Wide Web for free, I must say, is a little irksome for those of us who sell our stuff for money, but that's another story. For uh, that story is from an equity trader uh, uh, on the buy side, a buy side equity trader, who has a, uh, a web, uh, who has a podcast called Occupy a Job on Wall Street. And uh, most of the stories involved uh, most of the stories involve bad behavior of of him and his cohorts. This that story I thought was you know kind of Fitzgerald esque. Uh, you know, at the end of the story, he paints a kind of a lonely picture of the guy. You know, looking looking out over the expanse uh, of his lawn at, out on the tip of Long Island. I like this story quite a lot. Yeah, there are many reasons to uh, peruse and enjoy these things, one of which is uh, for those who don't work in any technical way on Wall Street is to get a better sense of how the place operates and what makes a firm go or not go. And uh, so there's, 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 there are technical details that um, are, uh, again, uh, it, it, you know, very easily accessible, nothing, nothing that is going to, to uh, confuse or puzzle, but things that will illuminate and explain. And... Um, uh, something called Culture's Clash at Solomon Smith Barney. And Doug alluded to this earlier in discussion of how uh, Solomon Brothers escaped from this uh, self-inflicted traumas of 1994 when it got caught out uh, cheating on a treasury market um, uh, auction. It seems like such a, a benign offense, you know, an inoffensive offense. And nowadays, New York City, you know, you can uh, do anything and not get prosecuted. But Solomon, anyway, Solomon Brothers got prosecuted for this. But they escaped for reasons that are explained here. And this particular piece by Richard Bookstaber, he was Solomon Brothers' chief risk officer at the time in the 1990s. It, it talks about um, how uh, uh, somebody who was in charge of reining in these high-earning cats, which don't like to be reined, how you exercise financial discipline among people who are operating independently in a firm on leverage and all competing for a finite pool of, uh, of bonus capital. So one of the ways one learns is through um, manipulating the interest charged on internal working capital, the interest rate on internal working capital. Ah. And of course, it's, it's ingenious. So um, when you want the, uh, the firm to shed assets, as is sometimes advisable, what you do is, uh, as John McFarlane, the treasurer, did, it was, is to raise the internal working capital rate. That's the charge, uh, the cost charge to desk to finance uh, security positions. That's that's really that's good to know, right? It's, it's it brings you into the life of the firm in a way that uh, I don't you don't you don't find out about these things until you uh, log on to Doug Lucas's Stories Finance. So I, I can't uh, speak too highly of this. It's really a great contribution to financial education. And, and each story seems to come with a kind of a discussion point for, you know, as if uh, you could pass it around a seminar and, and hash it over. Uh, but bravo, Doug Lucas. It's a very nice contribution to, uh, uh, to, to what? So you asked, uh, Evan asked earlier whether we learned anything. I would say no. There's no learning in finance. There, there's cycles in finance, right? Um, or no. What do you think, Doug? <laughs> Oh, man, you're asking all these deep questions. Yes, that's right. That's, uh, that's Grant's interest rate observer. That's what we do here. 
Yeah, you're asking one of these deep questions. I, I, I don't know. Um, the keeper, I think, uh, I think uh, like a lot of things, you're very good at solving the last problem that came up, but not so good at uh, thinking about uh, either future problems or the second to last problem that came up. Yeah. Well, uh, now there's, you know, we, uh, Evan's very good on this that, um, uh, you know, to uh, shut tight, nail shut, nail tight shut uh, the barn door of banking risk. Uh, we've um, kind of immobilized some banks, not all, for better or worse. But uh, this is this, this uh, push to, uh, you know, to get rid of proprietary trading, to kind of, as they say, de-risk the banks. I'm not sure how successful it's been. But what it has done is to encourage the growth of a, a new private capital industry. No? Yeah, we've had the growth of private loans, which I believe now is a $1.5 trillion asset right now. Um, these private loans aren't just to, you know, back houses or anything like that. They're to levered companies, uh, basically private equity buyouts. So now we've essentially moved the financing of private equity to the private equity managers who manage these uh, uh, private credit funds. They claim to have better performance and uh, higher interest rates than leveraged loans and high yield bonds, the traditional financing mechanism for uh, buyouts, even though they're lending to the exact same credits, just with more opacity and um, kind of less outside eyes. Yeah, which I guess is good at mark-to-market uh, -market time. It's great for market-to-market -market time. Um, one practitioner in the industry uh, confided to me, part of the reason why our defaults are so much lower than leverage loans, which are publicly traded bank debt backing buyouts, is that when we have a workout, we don't always re uh, record it as a workout. We just say the loan's performing. And the reason why our recoveries are sometimes higher is we sometimes count past interest paid as part of the recovery on the loan. Huh. At least that's what one guy told me. Yeah. In confidence. <laughs> yeah, so let's keep it to ourselves, okay, listeners? <laughs> well, Doug, this has um, been nearly fabulous, as I knew it would be. So thank you for coming on. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, Michael Milken said he uh, was doing the Lord's work. Or was that uh, Lloyd Blankfein? I guess well, maybe both of them doing Lord's work. No, that, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was like, yeah, that was Goldman Sachs. I, I think uh, Lloyd yeah. said it with a twinkle in his eye. But you are, um, if not doing the Lord's work, certainly doing a most laudable secular uh, piece of business in making available to uh, anyone with a sense of financial curiosity how the world works. So um, thank you for stories, Doug. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, you are entirely welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air.